I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, Memphis mayoral candidate Tammy Sawyer. Isn't that nice? Today's guest, Tammy Sawyer, is running for mayor of Memphis, Tennessee. And if elected, she would make history as the first woman ever elected as mayor of Memphis. Now, I grew up in Memphis, so this is a really emotional and important conversation for me. Memphis has, of course, a really rich history as a city at the center of the civil rights movement, but it also has really ugly history in some ways. Of course, it was the site of the sanitation strike in 1968. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was in Memphis to lead a peaceful march in support of those striking workers, following which he was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel. And since growing up there, a lot has changed and a lot has remained the same. One of the things that hasn't changed very much is the segregation and the poverty. Memphis is one of the most segregated cities in America. And that's where Tammy Sawyer comes in. Tammy Sawyer is an educator and an activist. She's also currently in office as the county commissioner. Tammy Sawyer was behind the Take Him Down 901 campaign. You may have heard of that. That was the campaign to remove Confederate statues in public parks in Memphis. Here she is describing what inspired her to start that campaign. So I founded Take Em Down 901 in 2017 in May of that year in an effort to join the national push for the removal of Confederate statues, especially the ones located in the South. You know, statues were being removed in New Orleans. There was Bree Newsom climbing a flagpole in, you know, South Carolina. And right here in Memphis, where the population is 63 percent, Black and Dr. King was assassinated here. The two largest statues and actually the only prominent statues were those that were for Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, and General Nathan Bedford Forrest. And as someone who, like you, had left Memphis, I lived in D.C. for a decade and returned home, felt that with all that we were facing still with racial division and racial wealth gaps and just a lot of racial inequity, that If we would continue to have these stand, they highlighted the refusal of our city to come to grips and really address, you know, the segregation and prejudice that was woven throughout our city's history. Yeah, no, I remember that night. I remember being online and then watching a video when those statues started to come down and everyone was emotional and I was emotional, even though (laughs) I was, you know, thousands of miles away, I could connect to how they were feeling. I'm sure people know who the statues are. But just in case they don't, Jefferson Davis and Nathan Bedford Forrest, you know, they both had plantations. They were both slave owners. Right. And I think Forrest was the head of the KKK for a while. Yeah, I remember the same. I graduated from high school here in 2000 and they were always just kind of there. I even wrote a history paper on Nathan Bedford Forrest while I was in high school. But as I came into my own awareness and just into activism and thinking about race, place and space, they just were larger than life to me and just major, not just monuments to people who were supposedly great military guys, but they were monuments to racism. Yeah. You know, when I watched that video of you, when those statues were coming down, I I felt like, and I, you know, I followed your campaign for a little while. I feel like you are 
kind of an activist to the core, right? And I love when activists run for office because there's this authenticity and this passion in their campaigns than you see in other campaigns, right? And, you know, I, I hate to say this, this is kind of a controversial thing to say, but I feel like in this political climate, there's a lot of performative activism going on. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. <laughs> but, you know, you also did a lot of protests. I think it was at the Civil Rights Museum there in Memphis after the verdict came from the Eric Garner case. Yes. That's when I got started, really. I moved home the year that George Zimmerman, he got off for killing Trayvon Martin. And I came home with this passion um, that I felt was actually ignited across the country. I call Trayvon Martin's murder the reawakening of our generation, millennials and Gen X as well. And so... You know, for me, I was wondering, how do I get involved? What do I do? I was working in education. I was, you know, really getting a major dose of what educational inequity looked like, as well as being a part of this, like, online movement. So tweeting all the time, Facebooking all the time about, like, what was happening. And I just wanted really to be a ground activist. I didn't just want to be on social media. And so when Darren Wilson was not indicted for shooting and killing Mike Brown, that's what actually caused me to organize my first protest here in Memphis. I was watching CNN. There's all this stuff happening across the country where people were taking to the streets everywhere in the Bay Area, in D.C., in Detroit, in New York. And of course, in Ferguson and in Memphis, right where Dr. King was killed, we were just kind of like, ho-hum, who's got the best wings? And, you know, like this being such a major civil rights place, not just because it was the place Dr. King was assassinated, but because of all the work that was done to even bring him here. The sanitation strike is one of the most major movements built during that era. Maxine Smith, Ida B. Wells, you know, 40, 50 years before them, broke the lid open on lynching in America. And here we were kind of apathetic and silent. And I felt like the city needed to be reignited. Yeah. And you did that. That brings me back to this whole thing that we have in common about growing up there and then leaving and then, you know, coming back. You know, Memphis has such a beautiful, rich history. Martin Luther King was assassinated there and we have kind of an ugly history, but we have a really important history. Right. And all the activists and people who kind of made Memphis their cornerstone of their activism kind of give it that poetic beauty, right? Right. You know, but I feel like the people there, and I felt this when I was growing up, I feel like they've been kind of lulled into this complacency of like, this is all we can have right now. You know, this is this is all the city can be, right? Right. And I think that's what hit me when I watched your campaign video. Like I said, I've been watching your campaign for a while. <laughs> and first of all, what I saw was the city that I grew up in, in your video, and everybody should stop and watch that video. You show all of these abandoned buildings and these abandoned storefronts fronts. Huge swaths of the city have just been forgotten and just left, you know, to just kind yeah. of, you know, die. But I saw in you a person who really loved that city, despite that. Mm -hmm. You know, when I moved away, I always felt like Memphis was a place to escape if you wanted something better than those abandoned storefronts. Yeah. And so that's why I admire you going back and taking that on. I'll be real. You know, Coming home was a big decision because you don't come back. Black kids who get out of Memphis really have very little reason to come back home except to visit your family at Christmas and maybe Thanksgiving, you know. But coming home, I can remember one of my good friends from high school being like, are you crazy? <laughs> like there's nothing for us. And especially, you know, as a millennial, as someone who lived in D.C. for a decade, 
I can remember coming home and like walking into a craft brewery and being looked at like I wouldn't know what to order. You know, I can remember going in coffee shops and people assuming I might not know the difference between Cortado and a latte or something like that. And I'd been exposed to these things. And at first, that was like a large part of my issue. I've had these experiences like, you know, I'm middle class. Why are you looking down on me? And then that was just ego, right? Like it was ego for me to call people out on Facebook. It was ego for me to be like, I'm not going to this store because they didn't think that I belonged. Really, the bigger issue is not whether or not somebody appreciates the $25 I'm going to spend on a bottle of rosé, but the fact (laughs) that our racial wealth gap is almost $70,000 in some parts of town between blacks and whites. And the issues were much, much deeper. Like you said, like the vacancies, people being driven out of their communities, right? The lack of investment in our education and our public works. I mean, they're tearing down buildings to build up new ones. And when they tear them down, they're finding rat infestation and lead levels that are higher than Flint. Why would we come home? But, you know, when everything started happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, I didn't want to fight in D.C., Like my city is at home and I want to go fight there. And when I came home, I learned very quickly about like, you know, my own privilege and bias towards my own community and have really emerged as a better person. Whereas I thought I was coming home as a savior, realizing that I was going to not save anything. I needed to be a foot soldier right next to everybody else. So I know like a lot of cities with a similar demographic makeup, there is, of course, gentrification. And we talked about Memphis's rich history. And a lot of that history is its architectural history. Then, of course, there's the music and the art history. And I'm thinking specifically about Beale Street. Now, Memphis is also known as the home of the blues. And I'm just wondering what you think about how a lot of that history has evolved to the point where its historical value has been diluted, diluted by commercialization or development. When Ida B. Wells was writing about Memphis, when the church family were the richest people in Memphis, Bill Street was a black street. The people on the street were black merchants, black club owners, black musicians, right? Now there may be... 5% of the places on Bill Street are owned by Black people. And we're charging $10 during the summer for people to get on the street in an effort to reduce crime and violence. And, And at the time when it was owned by Black people during the 30s and 40s, and it was like a booming entertainment district, people talked all kind of mess about it. You know, we don't go on Bill Street. You know, that's where the Negroes are. You know, that's not safe for us. But then they realized like it had historical value. And in New Orleans, there's um, Bourbon Street. And so we're going to do the same thing here. And we're going to take this prime real estate, make it a tourist trap, and then charge $10. The people who made this what it is 
literally can't afford to be here. Yeah, I feel like that's a story across a lot of cities across the country. (laughs) But I want to talk about some of the stats around Memphis, right? Because I always tell people to look at the data, right? So all the emotions I felt and all the discomfort I felt growing up in Memphis and feeling like not belonging in certain places or not being able to do certain things in certain places, there was data behind that. Mm -hmm. And that data was that Memphis is probably, I think it's one of the six most segregated large cities in the country. It has, you know, high rates of poverty amongst the black community, especially youth poverty. And that's the data that makes life untenable or makes it feel untenable for a lot of the young people who are still there now. Are those the kind of things you want to tackle? Obviously, they are as as mayor. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that drives me is, as you mentioned, the youth poverty rate. When Dr. King was killed here in 68, 50% of Black kids were living below the line of poverty. Today, it's 44%. We've barely moved the needle. And so just knowing that we have yet to address the systemic poverty and generational poverty that has given us a lopsided economy, lopsided as far as opportunity, equity, the chance to to thrive in, and, and even survive in this city is what drives me to want to be the mayor and, and, and address these changes. Like our mayor does not address the fact that one in five of all youth are neither working in school, one in three for Black youth. But Instead, we put money into things like Manhood University, where we teach boys how to be men. What? Like, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like our white mayor (laughs) believes that his contribution to youth and reducing recidivism is to have felons who return home go through a program called Manhood University. The patronizing nature of the program alone, just the name just shows a lack of understanding and awareness that this is not about personal behavior, right? Yes, people make bad decisions. Yes, folks find themselves in certain situations, but the mass level of the poverty, the mass level of the disinvestment in education is the real thing to fix, right? It's not about fixing individuals one by one by one so that you can say, I graduated a class of 400 people this year or 40 people this year. But rather, again, the fact we can drop a pin in almost any part of the city and see that the gap in the wealth between whites and blacks is anywhere from $20,000 to $70,000. And knowing that we're facing net wealth of the entire black community of the United States being zero dollars within the next 50 years, Memphis is probably already there, if not close. Wow. What is it? Man, man school? Manhood University. (laughs) So, you know, that again, and that's why I love your campaign. Like we can't wait because a lot of people think that the only choice they've had is to wait, to wait for better leadership. I mean, and that's what was put to us. Well, you know, you've done some good stuff and you've made some noise. You know, why don't you really get refined and run for mayor in 2023? And I'm like, "Mm, because Trump could win in 2020 because women's (laughs) rights to have decisions over their bodies are getting, you know, changed every day. What's promised to us in 2023? We are in a volatile political situation and local and state politics is really where we have to be fighting most of all. Like sometimes Trump and what's happening federally is a distraction 
because locally they are defunding education. They are defunding women's reproductive centers, you know, criminalizing immigration. Like I could go on and on and on. And so we need people who are willing to jump up and say, yeah, I'm not going to wait for eight, 12 years for you to feel like I wore the right number of blue suits every day. Like, no, we need change right now. No, you're right. We do. You have to look at the level of privilege that it takes to say, oh, you can wait. You can Absolutely. wait one year. You can wait three years. Right. I mean, that can only come from a place of privilege. So, and I've told people I could wait. You could wait. <laughs> like, honestly, we could all just sit here and wait. And, and we'll regret it, you know? Yeah, but that kid who's the next Trayvon Martin who's walking down the street there, does he have a year to wait? Exactly. One thing we haven't talked about is the fact that if you were to win, well, oh, sorry, when you win, <laughs> this will be historic, right? Because you would be the first woman ever elected to mayor of Memphis. And it's also historic because I think this is Memphis's 200th birthday this year it's is that right? bicentennial yep right so this is this would be a historic win for you so this is perfect timing to be the first woman in 200 years women have been on the receiving end of systemic oppression for a long time in memphis and in the south and for us to have never elected a woman to an office higher than a city council or a commissioner um, or a state position is pretty telling. No women congressional representatives, no women mayors or county mayors. And so I would hope to be able to usher in this wave of change where women feel like, no, I don't have to do school board and then maybe state rep and then maybe I can run for Congress when I'm 50. No, you can do it right now. And what's interesting is behind me, on my heels are a whole generation of women. Gen Z is lit. They're ready to go. You know, <laughs> if we don't do it now, it's coming, <laughs> you know, because women aren't waiting. We're seeing what's happening when women don't wait. We get the AOCs, we get the Kamala's and the Elizabeth Warrens. And so like watching women not wait, watching Stacey Abrams say, I'm going to define how my future is, no matter if I win or lose, right? Let me know that I didn't have to wait and no one else does either. And and I'm hoping that we are successful. I'm prayerful that we're successful because women and girls in Memphis deserve a chance to see themselves in leadership and with power and to show how we weld power differently and in a more intuitive and people-centered way. Wow, that's so powerful. I want to talk about mayoral elections and local elections, right? And, and the importance of them in this broader context, because we all know that local elections have lower turnout than national elections. And that's really unfortunate. And that usually happens unless there's a historic election like yours would be, or like Lori Lightfoot in mm -hmm. Chicago, the mayor elected there, and Stacey Abrams would have been the first black woman elected governor. So we talk about local elections when they're historic, but we don't talk about them generally and their importance. But I I just want to say that it's important that we all care about that, that we all care about cities like Memphis, because if you have such huge gaps in wealth, huge rates of poverty, how can people care about who to elect for president or who to elect to Congress when they're still just kind of looking for a job, right? Yeah. People say that all the time that even though this could, you know, is an inspirational race, that this is a change making race, that the people who are inspired and need the change the most aren't plugged in. They don't realize that local elections matter. They don't realize that the mayor matters because for so long they've had the same type of mayors and nothing's changed. My dad and I actually talked about it at lunch yesterday and he said to me, don't believe that. Don't believe that people aren't aware that their leaders have tapped out on them. 
He said, you got to knock on every door and let people know that there's, you know, like a new way of leading a town and people get to see this. And, you know, one of the exciting things for us is that because of the way I've shown up as a county commissioner, we are able to show people a glimpse of what it would look like should I be mayor, right? The thoughtful way that I go into meetings, the way that I address when people, you know, are asking me for $10 million for a parking garage. And I'm like, yeah, no, because I don't have $10 million for schools, (sighs) You know, and whereas before, even a year ago, that's something that would have flown. Somebody would have been like, cool. Yeah, you got it because we need that parking garage, you know, but people have to know that you really care. And that's where the pull up a chair comes from. Right. So me and this red chair are all over the city and people's faces like I'm going to listen to you and I hope you'll listen to me because I think we can do this together. I'm inviting people to be a part of the process not in asking them, hey, will you vote for me? You know, because I'm nice, but like, let's work together and we'll work together when I'm mayor. And, and I'm what I'm seeing is that resonate with folks because people haven't been asked. People have not been invited in so long, right? Into the process. People haven't been like, your voice matters. They haven't heard, I'm running to work for you, with you. And, and that's the type of mayor I want to be as well. We have to be a people-centered city. We can develop and chase cities like Baltimore and Austin all we want to. Our social challenges are even bigger than those cities right now. And if we don't get that right, all of this development is going to be for naught. Right, right. Well, you just read my mind. And that's another thing that I saw in the energy in your video. You know, there's a difference in leaders who want to govern over people. Mm-hmm. versus people who want to govern with the people. Right. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I can tell that you actually talk to people. So what are they saying to you? What is not working for them in Memphis? What's hurting them? Education is a big one. People do not feel like their kids are getting the education they deserve or the education that we fund. Only 24% of valedictorians who graduate from our public school system are prepared for college. You know, so why would people believe we're investing in their kids' education? The city has opted out of filling in the gap. They give no dollars to K through 12 education, right? But 65% of our budget goes to public safety. So instead of investing in education and intervention and prevention, we are solely focused on the arrest and conviction side of things. And I think what I'm hearing from people is that they want their kids to have a fighting chance, They don't want to know that the city has given up on our youth. They want to know that the city is investing in their kids, right? They want their trash picked up. They want to be able to take the bus. Something outside of Memphis that a lot of people take for granted. Our bus system is not capable of getting people to work and getting them home in a reliable amount of time or in reliable service because we've chosen to reduce funding for it and not invest in upgrades and modernizing it. Like there's so much that people want. They just want to know that someone is thinking through policy and funding of the city in a way that's like, these are the issues Memphians are facing and let's fix that. Did I hear you say there's no money going towards education? No, there. the mayor has a few programs that he like always likes to announce. Like I do this, I do that. But like I said, it's like very respectability politics, manhood university. Young Lady Academy, right? Wait, our girls and boys don't need that. There's a there's a, there's a young lady. <laughs> there's a young lady. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Something that's whatever. It, that's his female counterpart 
to the manhood university, you know, um, they brag about making the libraries open longer, but they've not added programming to the libraries. I don't even go in libraries anymore. I've got a Kindle (laughs) and an (laughs) iPad, you know, and, and Amazon. When you go in the libraries now, kids aren't in there for programming. They're not going to a library at six o'clock on a Friday or at seven o'clock on a Wednesday. But imagine if there was programming in the libraries that our youth wanted to see. Memphis is wildly creative. One of the things we're known for is our art and our music. What if our kids could go into their community center or their library and not just us be excited that we extended it two hours, but we extended it two hours and there's a beat making class on Friday. And the next Friday, there's a painting class. Give them what they love and link it to their education. Give them mentors and the things they're interested in. Then you don't have graffiti because they're actually painting at the Hollywood Community Center. They don't have to go paint, (laughs) you know, under the bridge. (laughs) Like show them how to use equipment and give them access to that equipment so they're not selling drugs or robbing in order to get some studio time. But no, we give zero dollars to K through 12 education right now. Wow. The only money we give, we have a $400 million settlement of back money that's owed to the school system. That's not considered part of the budget though. Zero dollars to K through 12. So I don't know if you know this, but how does that compare to other cities? I don't know how it compares to like, I can't compare it to other metro cities, but what I can compare it to is the five municipalities that surround us. For those listening, we have five major suburbs that grew and developed during white flight. And what they do is they get county dollars for their education. They get state dollars for their education and they raise taxes to also put city dollars into their education. We are the largest municipality in this metro area. And we put no city dollars into our education. Collierville was just able to open a state-of-the-art school, brand new building. They used their city dollars to pay for it. And our kids, the beginning of this school year, started with kids at one school not being able to go to school, go to their school building for the entire first semester because of a rat infestation. Wow. After the Christmas holiday, almost every day, there was a school building closed because their heat was out. You go into any number of schools right now, there are leaks in the ceiling and mop buckets in the hallway. Principals and teachers are fighting to educate their kids in buildings that are filled with mold and rats and water damage. (laughs) And we're still sitting here trying to believe that our kids think we care about them. Yeah, you know, I didn't actually mean to go into this, but I I think it's important for people to understand what it's like to grow up in a segregated city, right? I mean, when I was growing up, you know, and I didn't grow up in poverty, you know, we were kind of middle class, you know, I was probably still below the, the poverty line, right, nationally. But if I wanted anything that was somewhat nice, like a nicer bookstore, you know, anything, you had to go into these areas, which were far away, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like Collierville or Germantown, just to get a bookstore, not even just a nice, just any bookstore. And they're large swaths of the city that are just kind of left, you know, just as the bare minimum, you know, maybe a few corner stores, some gas stations and a bank, just, you know, just the bare necessity. Maybe not a bank. Maybe not a bank. (laughs) When I try to describe Memphis to people, they don't really understand because, you know, they think that if an area has been abandoned to that extent, you know, it must be really poor. And no, that's just the black sections of town. They don't even have to be poor at all. And I remember the same thing because... You know, when Borders was a thing, there were no bookstores in the city. You you talk about grocery stores. Most of the Black neighborhoods are food deserts. They are bank deserts. 
So that's what I'm fighting. I don't want apples to be exotic to our kids. I don't want them to see the Mississippi River for the first time on a trip in the eighth grade, right? Because there's no way for them to get downtown and they live 10 minutes from downtown. I don't want them to go to another part of town and wonder why my part of town is not like this, because we know that that shapes their identity. I want to change that. Another reason I find your campaign exciting is because you are part of this this movement, this movement of new young activists, the women activists who are stepping up to lead. And I'm so proud of you for that. And I know that there are a lot of women who see problems in their towns, like you see problems in Memphis, but they feel like they can wait. They can wait to lead. What do you say to those women? When you reached out, I was really excited. And to be in a time where women are showing their strength and not really taking the crumbs we've been given for a long time and to be one of those women is empowering. And I hope this is a trend that continues. Um, And so other women who are listening, please get in the game because we need you. That's really what I would add. And we have an opportunity to change the face of America and not give in to what could be a really dark decade or longer for us, and especially for Black and brown people. So it's time for us to stand up and fight for our communities and fight for each other. Well, Tammy Sawyer, thank you so much for stepping up to lead. I really appreciate you and I wish you all the best in your campaign. And thank you so much for fighting for my hometown. Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about Tammy Sawyer's campaign in today's show notes. And if you want to get involved, volunteer or donate, please visit TammySawyer.com. If you found this episode helpful, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Let me know what you think about my conversation with Tammy Sawyer today. Lastly, please follow The Electorate on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and that's at Electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.